Ron. Welcome to the WCSR Mailbag. Good morning and welcome to the second broadcast of WCSR's Mailbag. I've got a few emails in front of me this morning that I'm going to tackle. Uh, that's the first one is from the uh, John Green interview that uh, was on a few weeks ago. Uh, this is a question from a listener for that one. Where can I see John Green's database? Is it available? Well, now, I think that the database was an unfulfilled dream. You know, that's my own personal opinion. But uh, whatever form it is taken on, it's in the possession of the Green family. And it'll probably never again see the light of day, which is too bad. But, you know, one must understand the database was merely a compilation of thumbnail reports. The majority of incidents are covered in just three or four sentences. Uh, The location, the incident, the witness, the date. That information covering many of hundreds of encounters was a massive endeavor at the time. Now, these reports did not come through emails or chat rooms, but by snail mail and newspaper archives and phone calls and by word of mouth. Uh, the only others to attempt the uh, collecting of reports in a database from years later was the BFRO. And even then, there were a lot of disagreements among BFRO researchers as to what should be included in the data and what should be ignored. It's my opinion that many of John Green's collective sighting reports would never have made the grade for entry into the BFRO database. But, you know, you really got to admire the guy for having the gumption to try to put one of those things together. Uh, the next question is uh, has to do with the Bill Miller Memorial, uh, things that were spoken about there. And this is, this is uh, from Kathy. And uh, Kathy asked, uh, could you tell me more about how Bill Miller came to live in Harrison Hot Springs? Well, now, you know, I'm not sure if that was covered in the memorial or not by Thomas Steenberg, but uh, if not, I'll uh, capsulize it for you right now. You know, you know, it, it's my hope that in the near future, I can get a couple of researchers who knew Bill and have a podcast devoted to this guy because I believe he deserves it. He shouldn't be forgotten. Anyway, to my knowledge, Bill came up from the States with a trailer, which he parked up at 20 Mile Bay. He found a berth there with the help of Thomas Steenberg and the caretaker of the lumber operation, a chap named John Miles. Now, John is a great fellow who lives right on the shore of the lake, and he's got a million-dollar view right from his front deck. I'm kind of envious of him. Anyway, it was Thomas who finally convinced Bill to pack up and take a trip down the lake to an RV campground in Harrison Hot Springs. Bill moved to another campground on Harrison's main drag sometime later, and that's where he stayed for many years until the time of his passing. You see, he had to spend six months in Harrison and then return to his home state of Illinois for six months in order to keep his uh, green card. So after a number of years of doing research around Harrison Lake, he started up a tour service to supplement his income. And he was quite an amiable fellow, and the residents of Harrison loved the guy. I mean, any time I'd visit Bill, everywhere I go, everyone would be saying, Hey, Bill, how are you doing? How's it going today? You know, 
the fellow just ingratiated himself with people, and people were more than happy to spend time with him. Uh, he was quite the prime example of following your uh, heart where it leads. This email comes from a chap named Robert, and it has to do with Bill Miller again. And he writes, uh, as an avid TV writer, could you tell me more about Mr. Miller's hunting for Sasquatch technique using these kind of machines? Well, as a side-by-side writer for the past 15 or so years, the side-by-side always fascinated me as to how versatile that machine could be. Uh, If you need a stealthy mountain goat kind of transportation, they cannot be beaten, I can tell you that. Totally silent to the human ear at 200 feet, I know because myself and Bill tested that out. (laughs) One heck of a narrow turning radius. Provisions in the back, cool in the summer, warm in the winter. With an addition of a light bar, you could light up the side of a mountain if you wanted to. I mean, it's hard to beat that. But uh, Bill's, Bill's method is uh, would be pretty rare these days, as uh, having first-hand knowledge of it. Uh, I mean, the machine itself, usually after marketing, the muffler becomes stripped down. Sound system that would make deep purple cringe is installed, all topped off by a need to get from point A to point B in the fastest time possible. Now, I'm afraid the majority of side-by-side riders would have found Bill's type of research very boring, sometimes crawling along, uh, other times parking and getting out and walking, at times having somebody ride while their partner walks looking for a sign. You sure get to see a lot of wildlife doing things this way, though, I tell you that. You come across things like the Oregon spotted frog, which is an endangered species, by the way, or the B.C. salamander. Except for the bulging eyes, the black ones look just like little dragons. They're fascinating. You see beer, elk, deer, cougar, beer tracks in the damp, muddy soil, and the occasional footprint, too, which is why you're out there to start with. I can tell you, from running in a cloud of dust with a handful of machines, doing kind of a Congo line down the uh, forestry service roads. You know, it's safer, maybe, but actually wanting to take the time to get to know the country you're passing through, it's priceless. For me, I had enough choking on dust over the years, uh, whipping up and down Harrison East and Harrison West and other places. I I'm now prefer, prefer the uh, slow method, to actually, you know, get a chance to see the countryside again and to enjoy it. That's what attracted me, uh, riding with Bill in his machine. I thought, man, what a perfect way to see. You You couldn't do any better than if you had a horse, really. A horse is the only thing that could beat a side-by-side in that kind of country. Anyway, that's how Bill did his research. Slow and easy. And the next uh, email is, you know, it's it's a letter that's revisiting a question back in uh, episode three of Sasquatch 101, and it's coming back to haunt me. I got an email from a fellow named Bob who asked, do you think there's even a possibility that Sasquatch make nest? <laughs> 
I came across a report at my uh, uh, website, sasquatch-bc.com, a report by uh, Haas, who was an original founder of the West Coast uh, Research. And uh, his name was Ken Christian. And uh, he got a few reports in there, as well as Thomas Steenberg in the site. And uh, you should drop by and read them if you get a chance. That's sasquatch-bc.com. And this is a report that Ken Christian put in. And uh, to answer the question about the possibility of a Sasquatch making nest, my opinion is not too likely. But but if you're willing to bear with me, I'll read you the report as uh, Ken submitted it. He starts. About 1973 or 1974, I was down by the Fraser River talking to some of my old hand logger commercial fisherman friends, and the subject of Sasquatch happened to come up in the conversation. That was the first time I had ever heard that at, that at times these beasts might make some form of a nest or a bed. Old Bob was a local shake splitter who had just returned that same day from a deer hunting trip up in the Headley country. He somewhat shyly explained to the group that he found a large animal bed located on a perfect vantage point with six inches of fresh evergreen tree boughs laid carefully at the bottom. He went on to explain he had also found quite a few piles of huge human-type droppings, that no man or animal he knew of could make. Apparently these droppings were located about 75 feet from the bed and concentrated in one general area. Old Bob also went on to seriously explain that the beds, that the bed he found had plenty of dark colored hair at the bottom of it, and it stunk like hell. Now if I remember right, about six people burst out laughing and that old Bob became extremely angry and remarked he would take any one of us assholes, excuse the language, back up to Headley at that very minute and show us the bloody Sasquatch bed he found. Now, seeing Bob was terribly distraught and mad, uh, the entire group said that they were sorry and jokingly believed him. Sadly, nobody took Bob up on his offer. I wish to this day that I would have. So, that was Ken's report. Uh, Ken, tour guide, big game hunter, spent most of his life in the woods. Uh, honest as the day is long, another Bob Gimlin. And uh, that, uh, that, that was his impression of it. Me, the ship is still out on that one. The next letter, or email rather, get with the times, Jerry, as an email from Rita, and Rita wishes to know how many kinds of Sasquatch are out there. Well, Rita, you'll never get any two people to agree on the answer to that one. But hey, I got a fun fact for you. Just when you thought you had Sasquatch figured out, here, listen to this. Did you hear about the giant monkeys? four to six feet high, with long tails and three toes, reported over the years in the Pacific Northwest and British Columbia. They got dog-like faces, pointed ears, and aggressive behavior. Sort of like baboons, uh, you know, their general build, but 
A six-foot-high baboon? I mean, come on, really? But uh, the reports were even under investigation by John Green and Rennie DeHinden for a time. So, you know, I don't know. And uh, what about those pesky giant black lizards at the head of Pit Lake? The ones who were witnessed coming out of the lake late at night and laying, basking in the moonlight. I remember reading a report of a lady who was staying at the head of the lake who saw these lizards under her cabin. Not uncommon, uh, you know, uh, hunting cabins and such. A number of them were built on stilts and only accessible by ladder, which opened up a trap door on the deck or somewhere inside the cabin. So that that's the type of cabin this lady was staying in. So one night she woke up listening to this hissing noise coming from under the cabin. So going out on the deck with a flashlight, she shone it around but couldn't see anything. And uh, figured, you know, she the, the deck is covering them. Uh, they're directly under the cabin. So she lifted up the trap door and shone the light down the ladder. And down there she saw a number of these crocodile-like black lizards scrambling about. Well, she had to spend the night in the cabin because there was no exit past the lizards at the bottom of this ladder, you know. And I always found that one uh, amazing. I know there's been more than one report about the black lizards in the northern end of Pitt Lake. And why am I mentioning these stories? Because they're all cryptos. They're all about cryptos. And cryptos are the mandate of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club, of which I'm a proud member, by the way. Hey, as a kid, I loved dinosaurs. Still do. Uh, what about modern-day dinosaurs? Nessie, Ogopogo, Caddy. I got just the man joining me in an upcoming co- podcast to discuss these big boys of cryptozoology. None other than the vice president of the BCSCC, Adam McGear. So stay tuned for news on that one. And remember, these podcasts are all about our BC researchers whether they study Sasquatch, lake monsters, or giant whatevers. They are intensely curious, and they all have one thing in common. They are skepticals and don't look for an easy way out of a question. In that spirit, in two weeks' time, a one-hour conversation with none other than Thomas Good-to-Little-Puppies and Children Steenberg. Okay, dear listener, that about wraps it up for now. My name is Jerry Matthews. You can reach me at yellowcoyote at talus.net. Thank you for your interest, and until the next time, keep searching. Keep searching.